Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Raj Dadada, co-founder and CEO of Bloomreach, a commerce experience platform that's raised over $450 million in funding. Raj, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Great to be here with you. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm Raj Dadada. I'm CEO and co-founder of Bloomreach, and I've been a uh, multiple-time entrepreneur. So I've been in this entrepreneurial world for pretty much my whole professional life, all very shortly after graduating from college, which was a little a little bit of a time ago. And so I've been an entrepreneur, you know, multiple times over and now excited to be building and running Bloomreach, which we think of as a commerce experience cloud, which in a nutshell, like the way I think about that is that all of us live our lives digitally at this point. We're all shopping online all the time. And Bloomreach is really in the business of making sure that every e-commerce interaction and experience that you have as a consumer as you're shopping around is amazing, personalized, on point, and in so doing, helping the brands that power those experiences engage and acquire and and grow their customers. I have so many questions to ask you about Bloomreach, but before I dive into that list, I want to ask you a couple of questions that we like to go through just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So the first one would be, what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them and what have you learned from them? Yeah. So it's really interesting. I think that in 2023, we call founder a profession because all of us, I think, come at this in so many different ways. In my case, you know, I didn't intend to be a founder. I studied engineering. I got exposed to business a little bit. And then I kind of got accidentally drafted into my first startup and so fell in love with the entrepreneurial process that I was like, yo, this is what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. And so. The good thing about knowing that at, you know, 22, 23 years old is you don't waste a lot of time doing, you know, anything else. And along the way, you know, I think the great thing is there have been so many great founders and entrepreneurs that I've met that have influenced my thinking. Probably the one that I consider the model entrepreneur in many ways is Jeff Bezos and what he's built at, at Amazon. And I say that because specifically Amazon, I think, has broken the narrative of, hey, it's it's only possible to build one great business. They've innovated in so many different domains in what are ultimately really difficult, low margin categories. And so I just think it wasn't just one big thing like search or one big thing like social networking that, that pays the bills. It was sort of like building multiple entrepreneurial ventures within one company, which today we know is Amazon. So the Everything Store, which is a book that that's written about that is one that I recommend to all entrepreneurs, just about the relentlessness with which that business got built. And and I take that to heart every day, you know, when we're building Bloomberg. And I think Amazon's, you know, very well known for their customer obsession. They talk about it a lot publicly. Yep. And you know, as a consumer, you can really feel it every time you use Amazon. Is that something that Bloomreach has as well? Is that a top core yeah, value it, focus and obsession? It totally is. You know, I think what Amazon does that's less talked about in the customer obsession is the customer obsession is core to the business model of Amazon, you know, in the sense that if they're customer obsessed, then they acquire more customers. If they have more customers, they get more scale. If they get more scale, they pass on more savings to 
consumers, they get to build marketplace businesses and the like, and AWS costs less. So all these things are interrelated. In fact, what I took away from the customer obsession is it's not good enough to take these like monikers, like customer obsession or do the right thing for people. It's really about tying it into a flywheel that works. And so for Bloomreach, we built our own flywheel that's different than Amazon's, but is really tied into this idea that, hey, if we can acquire more customers, then we can get more data. If we can get more data, then we can, then our models perform better, which means we can deliver more business value to our customers, which then means they're more likely to invest with us, which then means the ecosystem grows and which then in turn feeds the flywheel to then keep acquiring more customers and grow the business. So we've tried to model that flywheel effect that Amazon has. Wow, that's super fascinating. And we'll dig into that here shortly. One last question for you. I know you mentioned the everything store there, but apart from that book, can you think of a book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? This can be a traditional business book or just a personal book that influenced how you view the world. Yeah, I like I like Zero to One as well. I think that's a pretty good one for the earliest stage of sort of like the everything store tells you how you scale out in a relentless way, all kinds of great at scale businesses. Zero to one on the other side is tackling the other side of the movie, which is sort of like, what if the script isn't written at all? How do you write the first version of the script? And I think about that a lot because I think in many ways, as a founder of an at scale business, the key quality is to step into one meeting and say, how are we going to go take over the world and step into another meeting and say, how can we invent something from scratch that disrupts ourselves or that moves the needle on something, you know, in a day one context. And so I think bouncing between those two mindsets mm -hmm. is key. Super interesting. All right. Now let's dive into Bloomreach here. So unlike some of the other companies that I've had on, you've been around for a long time. Most of the startups we talked to, you know, they're a couple of years old. You founded the company in 2009. Is that correct? That's right. And I'll tell you the unvarnished story here, which is basically, if I were to summarize the Bloomreach journey over the last 13 years now, 14 years, it was like a rocket ship in its earliest days, it was a total disaster in the middle. And then it's been a rocket ship again. And so it's really like a tale of three chapters over 14 years. You know, kind of the first, I would say five or six years were glorious. The middle, like three or four years were really rough. And then the last six years or so have been amazing again. And so it's a long journey, but maybe the untold story of so many startups, which is that most of these untold stories are not as up and to the right as you would think when you look at. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So take me back then to 2009, early days of Bloomreach. Where did the idea come from and why did you settle on this idea? And you know, what were the inspirations there as you were getting going? Yeah, so it's hard to remember this, but these were days when you know Facebook and Google were the primary companies, Amazon along with it. Early days of sort of like first 10 years of e-commerce and the internet. And our thought process at the time, to put it really simply, was one day billions of people are going to live their lives online and the quality of the digital interactions is going to be as important as, as the quality of every physical interaction we have. And so let's go build the kind of platform where if any of us are, are online, every digital interaction is amazing and speaks to us and is personalized and feels like our best friend knows us. And so we set out to be able to build Bloomreach really to fulfill that vision. We call it magical and measurable experiences for people in business. And in those earliest days, that was like a very grandiose vision. But the key question was, you know, okay, what's holding us back? And what we felt was holding us back was you couldn't possibly hire enough human beings to curate every website, every app interaction, 
and make it work for every consumer that was going to go visit those apps and websites. You'd really have to be using data and data science to inform that and to make it such that at scale, every one of these interactions was magical, but it had the machines and data and data science had to play a key role in it. So when I think about those earliest days, we pulled together some of the core engineers that involved in building the search engine at Google and the newsfeed at Facebook and said, hey, let's turn the problem around. Let's not go build a Google or a Facebook. Let's go build the platform for everybody else to deliver that quality of of interactions. And it was a group of five or six of us that came together to make that happen. And, and we got started. Now, that all sounds great. You know, recruiting people from Google and Facebook. That's probably the dream for a lot of founders listening in. How'd you do it, though? How'd you convince them to you know, leave those roles and, and join you and, and what you're trying to build when it was, you know, it sounds like it was just really an idea and a vision that you had. It really was. And I think the idea was powerful to begin with, right? This idea that, hey, Google might serve billions of consumers who know what they're looking for, but for the billions of websites out there, how are they going to deliver a Google-like experience or a Facebook-like experience? Let's go. It was a powerful vision and powerful visions are important. You know, when all you have is a dream in the earliest days and the dream better be worth it. And so I think that was the first thing. But the second thing we did that was interesting was, you know, we roped in an an early investor. So I incubated this idea with Bain Capital Ventures and a partner I knew there. And so, you know, as I was doing that, it became possible to then go to potential employees and say, look, there's a pretty high probability this venture gets funded in the first place, which is always a risk in its earliest days. So by taking out that risk, we were able to get the attention of some really good people. And then the final decision we made was not to hire a lot of people. We actually were able to get $5 million in the bank pretty early, but we only had five or six people in the company for the first probably 18 months. So we didn't hire a lot of people. And the thesis behind that was, you know, the key to solving really hard problems is to have the right people, but also to give yourself the room to fail a bunch of times. And so we were able to kind of, I think, put the triangle together between right people, big vision and money, and then be able to iterate on that for a long period of time until it really came together. And in those early days, did you encounter people who didn't believe in that vision and and question if the vision could actually happen? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I think one of the key questions that we would get in its earliest days was, look, I don't think you can build a platform that's going to power every website, every app out there without turning into a professional services business. Like, can you build software that can personalize every interaction for categories as different as, you know, selling groceries online and, you know, selling ThinServe uh, products online? So, I mean, these are pretty different offerings. And so I don't think you can do that. So there was a lot of technical risk questions that we would get. We would certainly also get questions about like, how are you going to get started and challenge the giants? That's the usual question that we would get. So there were, there were a ton of naysayers as, they, as there always are. And then can you just paint a picture for us of what the tech ecosystem looked like in the Bay Area back then in 2009? You know, what was that starting yeah. point like for you? Yeah, that's a great point as well. I mean, for one thing, it was kind of a, a tough economic time, much as it is right now. In fact, I think the hardest economic time before now when we're experiencing tech layoffs left, right, and center was 2009 and 2010. We've gone through a 10-year-plus period of time where the world hasn't experienced this, but that was a period of time after the financial crisis where there was no venture funding, where people were worried about any business that had capital needs. It was not a robust entrepreneurial environment at all. Yeah, that makes sense. That's very useful information for people to hear, I think, now, as they're uh, you know, potentially starting a company in the current climate today, which uh, 
Does it yeah. seem to be ideal? Well, actually, the best time to start in my mind is in the worst economic times. That sounds like a weird thing to say, but when you want the good economic times is when your venture is like hitting on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. And that usually takes a few years. So often what happens when you start in the best times is, you know, money is plentiful, but people are hard to hire. It's really expensive. It is a lot of competitive noise out there. You know, so only one out of the like 10 things you need to start a successful venture is easy. And that's getting money. The other nine are actually pretty hard in good economic times. The exact reverse is true in bad economic times. It's hard to get money, no doubt about that. But if you have money, it's easier to craft value propositions that are really real. If customers buy your stuff, they'll probably buy even more of it in good times. It forces a level of focus and discipline because you have less money to work with than you tend to have. It's easier to get the best people to come. The people that come, come for the right reasons. They aren't doing it just because it's cool to be at a startup because it probably didn't pay all that well and, and it has a lot of risk. So there's just so many good things that come from starting ventures in bad times. Yeah, I can see that. Now, something else I'd like to zoom in on just because you mentioned it is the, uh, it sounds like the messy middle there. So the middle point of the company, what year is, did that begin where it started to have some hard times? I think the hardest years were around 2015, 2016 for us. So kind of like six years in. And that's what makes Bloomreach a weird story. Usually the hardest times are the earliest times. Mm-hmm. Like you struggle early. You don't find product market fit. You amble along. That takes a while. And then either it peters out or it works out. But Bloomreach was not that case. I think we had like the ultimate false positive. We had a first product that really was like selling really well, but was kind of a mirage. It wasn't going to last. So around 2015, it was really clear that this business that we had built, which by then had probably 150, 180 people, was not going to last. And so we had two choices. We either you know, could shut the whole thing down, despite the fact that it, was, it had had this early success, or we could build a completely new business on the same tech and on the same value proposition and on the same vision and with the same cultural roots. And that's what we chose to do. And so what was so difficult about, like, as you call it, the messy middle was we were sort of like had a business that was declining and having to build a brand new startup largely in 2015, 2016, that was almost at ground zero and build that to what Bloomreach is today. And if I look at what Bloomreach is today, which publicly we've announced is more than 150 million of annual recurring revenue. And I think about that original business that we had in 2015 or 2016, like a million dollars of it is from that original business. The rest of it has been built in the last six years. And what was wrong with the product or why was that declining so much? Yeah. So the original product was a SEO product. It was basically using algorithms to optimize websites for SEO. And as you know, you know, SEO is like dominated by Google and very difficult to predict what happens with the traffic that you get to a given website. So it was sort of like we were building a product whose destiny we did not control. And that meant you could have good years or bad years, good quarters and bad quarters, but ultimately you couldn't influence the long-term success of it because ultimately the SEO ecosystem is controlled by Google, not by anyone else. They have 90% market share in search. So it's a very difficult place to build a business. It's kind of you're inhabiting a planet that you don't control fundamentally. And that that was the core issue with it. And you know, it actually was a relatively large business at that point, but but not one we could believe would be an at-scale business at an independent software company that would create tremendous value. 
And what was that like internally making that change? Was that hard to communicate with the team and with investors of, hey, you know, it, I know it feels like we have a good business here, but the reality is we don't. And if, if we don't make a change soon, we're going to be gone. Was that, you know, what were those conversations like? And then another question on top of that is, you know, what was your psychology like as the founder, entrepreneur, and you know, the CEO of this company? How were you, you know, taking care of yourself and making sure that you were fresh as you were having these conversations and making these types of decisions? Yeah. So, it was some of the most difficult years of being a founder and being the CEO of the company, because if there's one thing you count on from your leader, it's clarity of where are we going and why. And I was myself not very clear, right? So I remember standing up in front of a room of people back in 2015, 2016, saying, look, we have this business that's in decline. It's kind of not looking good, frankly, but we have a lot of incredible assets. We have great tech. We have great customers. We have a great culture and a great group of people in this room. And I don't know how long it's going to take for us to go build something new that creates an incredibly valuable company. But what I know is I'm here. We're here. These are our assets. If you want to be on this journey with me, stick around and I won't fault you if you don't. And there was just an incredible catharsis in recognizing the lack of clarity and being honest about it. And incredibly, a lot of people were like, look, Raj, if you're here, I'm here. We're going to figure this out together. That's what we sign up for. And a lot of people made that choice and I think are, are grateful for having made that choice during those years. And it forged a fabric of an incredibly resilient company, you know, thereafter. And as far as, you know, me personally, I mean, I, I had the good fortune of having like a super stable family and just kind of life situation without which I don't think the volatility of doing this you know, could make sense. And then the other thing I, I told myself was, look, you just got to stop thinking about whether you want to do this or not. Like, that's not fair to your investors or to the people on the team. Like, I either have to be all in or all out, but there is no in between. And so I almost told myself, look, I'm just not going to think about whether this makes rational sense. I'm just going to make it happen. And until the day when I give up making it happen, I'm just going to be 100% all in and convey that. And that was really important as well, because me being so all in caused a few other people to be all in who caused a few other people to be all in. And, you know, we pulled it off. So amazing. Really appreciate you telling this type of story. I feel like a lot of times with startups, you only hear about you know, the good times and then maybe there's you know the hard times at the start, but then it's mostly just the good times that they reflect on. So really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing some of that pain you guys went through in the, the middle stage. Now let's talk about the growth stage there, kind of that third chapter that you're in, it sounds like. When did things really begin to take off and head in the right direction when you moved into that new product? Yeah, so we started to build, you know, kind of a new product and launched it. And it started to have some traction around 2016. But to give you a sense, sort of like the new product was like a million dollars of revenue and the declining old product was like 20 something. So I saw that it was working. Back to that, like you always have to have a zero to one mentality. I knew there was a kernel of something that was going to build a great company. It did not seem apparent in 2016 to sort of the rest of the world, to our investors, to, you know, the broader industry. It kind of looked like Bloomreach was just struggling a lot because the outside metrics didn't look very good. But I knew we had the kernel of a new startup that was going to make it and work as early as like, a year into this, like around 2016. And so we just stayed at it for the one became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. 
and started to compound. And pretty soon by, you know, like five years later in 2020, people woke up and they were like, man, this company is like a pretty large company that got built along the way. We just didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And so it was clearer to me many years before it was clear to the rest of Silicon Valley. But, you know, by 2020, we had gone out and, you know, raised money at over a billion dollars. And people were like, oh, where did this company come from? I thought it died five years ago. (laughs) And it just sounds like such an insane level of perseverance and really patience on your end. Because when you're talking about five years, that was already what? six years into the journey. So these aren't your small timeframes. No. <laughs> and I think a lot of people in tech and just in life in general, you know, think on these, you know, rather short timeframes. So how did you train yourself to, you know, be okay with sticking it out for so many years? Even if we just look at that, you know, five year stretch where you launched the new product and to see that through, how do you keep it going? Yeah. I mean, so the story is even crazier because in those five years, we were not able to raise any money. So you talked about the $450 million, and that's true. But the reality is it was $100 million before 2015 and $350 million after 2020. So between 2015 and 2020, there was no money. Wow. So the, <laughs> the thing we had to do is we had to rely on the cash flow from our customers to fund the business and almost like operate like a bootstrap startup and then go raise money you know, much later. So those five years were very hard. I I think, to be honest, I'm not sure I knew it would take five years to go make that happen. I think I kept telling myself it was just around the corner and just around the corner became five years. (laughs) And that just kind of kept me going. But I did believe like early on, I saw the traction. I saw the customer value. I saw the product working. You know, I did believe. I always wish, I remember wishing it would go faster, but I went from like doubt to conviction And that helped the years go by. And yeah, I did ask myself that a variety of times, like, is this the right thing to be using, you know, time and everyone's sort of career is valuable in terms of where we all spend our time. So, but, you know, we were building something amazing. I still very much, it was the same core vision I had back in 2009. I believed it in my bones and I had a great team. And so I felt like I had some assets that if I were to go, you know, leave and start something else, I would have to rebuild. And in that time period, do you recall like your darkest moment or or darkest period of time where you ever just sitting there in your office or on a walk just thinking like, shit, or how do I get out of this situation? I mean, I did not one time, but like with regularity, I remember going for walks with my wife or or with some of the key folks, including our COO stuck around through that period of time and being like, you know, is this going to work? Our investors, I remember having conversations with them being like, look, I just want to be honest with you. I could completely lose all of your money. <laughs> you know, and I, I remember one conversation that was a pivotal one, which around that time, I brought in an independent board member. You know, and until that time, we had always only had investors on the board. And I brought in an independent board member who had been a founder and CEO of a company that today is worth billions of dollars and is publicly traded. His name is Marcus Ryu, and he's the founder and chairman of a company called Guidewire Software. And I remember Marcus telling me a near-death story of his own company that later was very successful. And we really related to each other because we, I felt like, had a certain kinship and having a shared experience. And I remember telling Marcus I was struggling with the current business and this new business. And he just looked at me in the eye and asked me a couple of very simple questions. Number one, is the planet you're on inhabitable or do you need to go find a new planet? (laughs) Number two, do you have, if the answer is you need to go 
you know, it's not inhabitable. You need to go find a new planet or a new product or a new business. Do you believe you have an unfair advantage and you have conviction that you're going to find that planet? And number three, do you look around the room and say, you know, these are the people in the foxhole? And if the answer to that is those three questions are yes, nothing else would matter. And it provided me just an incredible emotional and mental strength to have someone to talk to because it wasn't that easy to talk to our investors, to many of our team members about all of the mental ups and downs that would come along with us. Because there were a lot of dark moments, for sure. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Now, I think I read in one of the funding announcements, it was 2022 that you did the $175 million round. Is that right? That's right. Yes, that was early January of 22. What was that day like when that was all signed? What was going through your head? <laughs> How'd you feel? Yeah, I was super relieved and super happy, you know, to have the money. In 2021, we had had a spectacular year and we were coming off an amazing time and we were saying to ourselves, let's strengthen our balance sheet. Let's make sure we have the capital to invest for the future. And we did. And we found a great investor, Goldman Sachs, that invested in the business. And when that money came through, there was just a feeling of, look, we control our own destiny now. It's just up to us. We can build a you know multi-billion dollar company at scale and we have the capital to do it. Obviously, we have the business to support that round. But yeah, you know, it is a feeling of exuberance to accomplish that. And that takes exactly like five minutes. And then you start being like, okay, what's the next mountain to climb? That's how it felt. Yeah, I can imagine it's an insane moment followed by probably a little bit of panic of, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I mean, I've had moments of panic, but I wouldn't describe panic. It was more like, all right, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And someone's given us 170 million. You know, how are we going to make this a $500 million ARR business, billion dollar revenue business? It sort of like makes those ambitions that you talk about in decks mm-hmm. very real. And you're like, okay, you know, let's give this a shot. It's pretty cool. It's very cool. And Goldman Sachs, that's an interesting investor. I feel like you don't hear them, or at least I don't hear about them investing in tech that often. Am I wrong there? Do they do a lot of tech investments or was there something specific they were looking at when they invested in Bloomreach, do you think? I think they do a set of at-scale tech investments, right? By then, Bloomreach was well over $100 million in, in revenue. It had hundreds, thousands of brands that were on the platform. So there was like no risk the company was gonna go under at that mm. point, right? So when Goldman invested by then, it was an at-scale business. It was growing well. It had clear market traction. So they weren't investing, I would say, in a tech startup anymore. They were investing in a, in a growth stage technology company that was going to be around. Makes a lot of sense. Now, let's zoom out a little bit more and just talk about the very, very high-level product that you have today. So what is that high-level product that yeah. customers are paying for? Yeah. So Bloomreach, you know, we think of as a commerce experience cloud, but to, to make it really simple, we all shop online and let's say we're bearing, buying a pair of shoes or buying a laptop or whatever it is. The first thing that's going to happen is, you know, a brand is going to engage us. Apple's going to engage us or, you know, Cole Haan is going to engage us to their brand and say, Hey, maybe you're in the market for a pair of shoes. And that's going to happen through email, SMS, web ads, all the marketing channels. So the, the first offering we have, we call Bloomreach engagement. It engages more customers to brands. It delivers highly personalized email messages, SMS messages, websites, ads to engage more customers and say, hey, if you're in market for something, you get exposed to the brand. And then the second part of our offering is, all right, I've gotten the email message on the pair of shoes. I'm going to click through and go to the website. And now I'm actually looking for the exact pair of shoes that meets my needs. Maybe it's 
hiking or maybe it's to go out or whatever it might be. And, you know, we'll power the website, we'll power the search box, the content, the navigation menus, and we'll guide you to the right product. And once you've added the pair of shoes to your cart, then the Bloomreach part of the journey ends and it goes into a lot of the backend transactional systems to enable you to actually buy the product, get it shipped to your house, get the fulfillment to work, all of that. So Bloomreach, the reason we call it an e-commerce experience is it's basically the core shopping experience that you have online for thousands of brands. And you don't know this, but you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions on big websites like a Williams-Sonoma if you're buying cookware or an REI if you're buying hiking gear or an Olakai if you're, if you're uh, buying sandals. Behind the scenes, it's all powered by Bloomreach. And can you give us an idea of just the numbers that we're working with here? I think I read on LinkedIn, 850 brands trust you. Any other numbers you can share just so we can try to understand the scale? Because I know it's a massive scale that you're talking about. Yeah, so the scale that we're talking about is almost a quarter of consumer-facing e-commerce in the US and the UK is at some point touched by Bloomreach. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, you load a web page, it's calling Bloomreach in the back end and showing you the web page. You use an app, you send an email, you get an email message in your inbox, you get an SMS message. There's a decent chance, there's a one in four chance almost that, that Bloomreach played a role in determining what to show you at that moment. And it's using you know, we have almost 30 patents pending around around various AI technology that is trying to figure out what do I put in front of you as a consumer right now that increases the probability that you engage with this brand, get the experience you're looking for, and that ultimately the brand gains, you know, customers and serves the most effectively. And I'm sure there's a, a long list of things and it's probably hard to narrow it down. But if we had to just pick a few things that you got right, what would you say that those are? You know, how were you able to rise above the noise and just really dominate the market in the way that you have? I think we knew we did a few things right. Number one, the core vision was right. Like we've been at it for a long time, but the core vision of saying, hey, one day people are going to be shopping online and the quality of the product you show me, the content you show me, the blog article you show me is going to make a big difference in my interaction with you as a brand. That core idea is just a good idea for at scale you know, to solve that problem. We believe the data was at the root of solving that problem. And, and we were right about that, I think, as well. So I think the core premise was a really good premise. The market has been a really good market in e-commerce. But then I think what we did very effectively is we picked narrow parts of this problem gradually over the years and did a great job solving each piece. We didn't show up and say, with this big idea, let's go. It was, all right, let's make search boxes really good. Then let's make merchandising really good. Let's make the content really good. Let's add email and make that really good. Now let's add SMS and make... So we had a, a gradual playbook that followed the way people interacted with brands and shops online. And we ruled it out gradually and did one step at a time really well. And I think that helped us as well, but always with our eye to an unflinching commitment to this vision. So we were also not sidetracked by a lot of other things that were not core to that vision in doing so. And maybe the last thing I'll say is, the real secret sauce of the company is not the products in the market. It's really what we are doing from a culture perspective to attract great people and to create the kind of operational environment that's like just a force to be reckoned with. And, and so as companies have gone through all kinds of dislocations, whether it be COVID and work from anywhere and offices shutting down or not and the great resignation and now the great layoffs, 
we just haven't dealt with very much of that and had very many problems. Like we've just cruised through. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I don't mean cruise through and it hasn't been a lot of hard work. It's that we have built the kind of cultural playbook that it's almost like an operating system for the company that always allows us to thrive and do it the right way. And how do you build that cultural playbook? I'm sure that didn't just like pop up organically or naturally. That must have been, you know, a big push that you made, I would guess, at some point. Or, or how did that come about? Yeah, like everything at Bloomreach, I think it's just all taken a really long time. You know, so it was there in its earliest days. Like we had written the values and culture before I even started the company. It's the same document that we operate on today, 13, 14 years later. But what we did really well is we said, we're going to turn each of these core values into operational practices and we're going to measure our success every quarter, every year, the same way we measure our revenue, the same way we measure our our product success. So, you know, you go and do something for 13 years times four quarters, you just keep making it a little better and a little better and a little better. And pretty, pretty soon it's pretty good. Makes a lot of sense. Something else I wanted to ask about, and I know we've mentioned it a few times here, is the e-commerce experience cloud. So the first question is, you know, what are your general views when it comes to your market category? Is that your market category? Is it a different market category? And then the the follow-up question there are, is going to be, what are your views in general when it comes to category creation? Yeah, I think we think of commerce experience really as, you know, an umbrella category in many ways, where we serve the e-commerce market. And we deliver great customer experiences with any commerce. And that's why we call it a commerce experience cloud. But we don't think of ourselves as our priority is to go create a category because we operate in, I would say, two primary categories. One is the customer engagement market, which is where you know our marketing products work. And that's kind of half our business. And then the other half of our business is empowering e-commerce storefronts. And that's the second market where we serve search and navigation and we call our product there Bloomreach Discovery. And so we really, I think, serve two markets with great products that work really well together to deliver on this vision of a of magical and measurable experiences, of highly personalized e-commerce interactions. But we don't spend a lot of time saying, let's go create the category for that. We spend a lot of time saying, let's go win our two markets and let's deliver on this promise that when connected together, you can deliver a world-class shopping experience. Interesting. And, you know, 13 years in, what motivates you to do things like this? You know, why are you talking to me? I saw a bunch of other podcasts that you've done in the past. I saw that you wrote a book. You know, you're a huge company. And a lot of the founders I speak to that are much, much smaller have this view that they don't have time for these types of things. But it seems like you really invest in some of the smaller things and really try to spread your message. Is that an intentional strategy that you've always had? Or is it more that you're at a level of success now where you can go back and and do these types of things? You know, I mean, no doubt, it's harder to do these things in the earliest days. But I have a few motivations. I mean, the first is, you know, I'm obviously keen to make sure we tell the Bloomreach story and that creates value for the company as a whole. But beyond that, I also see it as my responsibility. You know, I've been an entrepreneur for 25 years. And I do think there is a glamorization of the profession that suggests that everything looks like Elon Musk or whatever it is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. And those aren't, those aren't the stories of the 99%. And I really want to make sure that we tell the real story, that we give people the courage to start these businesses and confront the obstacles that come along the way. And if my story helps 
motivate people and be motivated for the right reasons, then I feel like it's part of my responsibility to give back to the entrepreneurial community the way others gave to me. Wow. I love that. And I'm sure the founders listening in also appreciate that. Uh, It's hard to find people who are so open with their stories and, and share these vulnerable moments. So it's very appreciated from myself and I'm sure from the audience as well. Now, last question here. Let's end on a high note and talk about the next five years. So what's the five-year vision here for Bloomreach? What's it going to look like five years from today? You know, we're just like an incredible time, right? So if I think about where we are in this world, on the one hand, we're still 18% penetrated of e-commerce as a percentage of retail. So there's like a long way to go before digital actually takes over a lot of commerce. So so we're, we're early innings in that regard. We're early innings in this idea that we can use data to transform experiences. That's even earlier than the 18%. Much of our shopping journey is non-personalized and, and doesn't speak to us. So we have a long way to go to, to build a kind of profound experiences. And then along come incredible technology trends like we've seen recently with OpenAI and ChatGPT and, and large language models and things of that type. So technology keeps marching along to open up the possibilities to make this all happen. So when I think about the next five years, I mean, I think we could see a level of acceleration that when you put these forces together, it's pretty remarkable for consumers to have a different quality of digital experience. And for businesses that are building online, I think you can reinvent the set of capabilities you could offer those consumers in the next five years in a way way which we never could. So I'm excited for Bloomreach to be at the forefront of making this happen. But but I, I think it's, you know, it's early days. Wow. Fascinating to hear you say early days when you've been at it for so long. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's always day one. Yep. Love that mindset. All right, Raj, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today's interview. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn. You know, that's probably a good place to start. You can certainly find Bloomreach online on all the social media platforms. And you can probably find us on Twitter as well. Awesome. Raj, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and talk about everything that you're doing here. This has been one of my favorite interviews and hope to have you back on in a couple of years. Absolutely. Keep in touch. 